Well, good morning. If you're visiting with us today, we're delighted you're here. This morning, if you turn your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 5, finish up a message that we began a couple of weeks ago in having righteous relationship. This morning, as we look at this passage, it really is a continuation, and actually it moves on in beginning in chapter 6 with, with the basic thought that where all of these principles that we learn and the things that we want pastors to teach and be, and again, these are the pastoral epistles, and so certainly these things apply first to me as a pastor, to those who are in leadership as elders or assisting pastors, uh, worship leaders, people who serve in the church. It should always be more evident in our lives. But really what ultimately happens is this also moves into your life and how you are used on this earth while you walk with the Lord and in your daily uh, walk, no place is it more greatly used than in the workplace. As I was sitting in an office building two days ago in downtown Sao Paulo out overlooking the skyline and, and sitting there with a group of attorneys talking legalese and going over all these business things and you know it, one of the things it's very easy to do is to fall back on your flesh you know after a while you get tired of hearing bad news you're just like okay well didn't you read that before you know it's like how did we get to this place there's all those things but at the end of the day what we want people to know is about the love of jesus amen so no matter where you are, if it's in the workplace, if it's in your home, if it's in your school, if it's where you're ministering in maybe a family situation, we are supposed to take these principles and live them so that we have righteous relationships while we're here on this earth. And, and there's a difference between rightness and righteousness. Rightness is, in essence, those things which we could say are in the horizontal plane. They're the things that belong to this earth. But righteousness is that which comes from God. So it's the vertical relationship. So it is the vertical that then should make its way into the horizontal. If I want to be right with other people, I need to be righteous in the way that I deal with them. And so part two here, and it begins by talking again about pastors, and it's going to move on into our personal relationships. And so would you pray with me as we ask God to bless his word? Father God, thank you for getting me home safe and, Lord, back to this body whom I love. And pray as we now study your word that you would uh, open our eyes to, to see you, Lord, our ears to hear your voice. Lord, our lives to be touched and changed. Lord, move in us to, to will and to do your good pleasure. We pray that we provide no resistance to your righteous standards, your holiness. We, we pray that we, as we submit to you and, and honor you with our lives, Lord, wherever we find ourselves, that you would be pleased with us as a church, that our lives would speak the name of Jesus and his love wherever we go. We bless you. We thank you for this time this morning. And pray now, God, that you, you would just come and inhabit uh, the praises of your people as we turn our attention to your word. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 22 here, and it says and begins, Do not ordain anyone hastily. That seems like kind of an odd statement, but it is so true. Because when you talk about those that should be in leadership, one of the things that's necessary to find out, and one of the processes that we have in this church for ordaining pastors and bringing people in leadership and children's ministry and teaching and all of those kind of things is watching somebody's life and character over time. There is no substitute for a continued emphasis of the work that God is doing in us over time. 
you can fool anybody for a day. Amen? It's easy. You can speak Christianese. You can hold your tongue. You can do all kinds of things. But what happens is as you examine someone's life over time, it becomes very, very clear exactly where they are with the Lord. And there is no substitute for it. And we have uh, an ordination package that we use here in this church. And you can't get it done in less than a year. Furthermore, one of the qualifications is you need to attend this church more than once a week for over a year. We want to see what type of person it is that we're bringing into leadership. Because we don't want it to just be a flash in the pan. We, we don't want someone to come and who maybe put on a good show for a week and all of a sudden we find out that their life really isn't that stable in the Lord. And so a great way to avoid the sticky issue of having put somebody in leadership or brought them into a teaching position too quickly is give it some time. Don't ordain people hastily. And can I say to you, not everyone who wants to be a teacher is actually gifted at it. And you can pull one message out of the hat rather quickly. You know, maybe God just anoints you for a specific period of time. But to see that in action over a period of time is a far different matter. And so it says, don't bring someone into the ministry too quickly, because what we don't want to have happen is you to get messages. We don't want someone's life who is in leadership to give you the wrong impression, and you therefore go out into the world with the wrong impression of God's holiness, His character, His nature, what He has commanded us to do. We want you to have stability. So in leadership in the church, we want to make sure those people that are in leadership are the very best examples that we can possibly produce in the local body. And he goes on and it says, Do not participate in the sins of others. You see, it's one thing to not do something yourself. It's another thing to approve of people doing something they shouldn't do. And both have a place, especially in leadership. And one of the ways that this comes into practice is, in essence, by not being an accessory to the crimes of others. When we counsel, we counsel from God's Word. And if I myself first don't live it, I'm certainly not going to share that with you, and if I don't share it with you, then you go out into the world and you live your lives in such a way as to not be pleasing to God. It is so important that we both are sinless ourselves in as much as we can possibly be, and that we instruct other people to do exactly the same thing. You see, there shouldn't be a standard that I hold for me and one that I allow for you. And if it's true for me and I teach it authoritatively because Scripture declares it to be so, then that should be the message you get consistently throughout the church. Uh, And that's one of the reasons back in chapter 3 that Paul had said that the pastor, teacher, the elder shouldn't be a recent convert. You haven't had time to absorb the things of the Lord. You don't even know what Scripture says on most subjects. And so it begins by making these things in such a way in our lives that we could look at them and we go, you know what, okay, there is a standard. And there's exactly one standard. There's one standard for marriage. There's one standard for life in general. Those standards that we have that we talk about being the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, those things apply to everybody. And we should all be engaged in those in that type of a lifestyle. And it, in essence, is saying, keep yourself pure. 
The reason that these things are so important from a practical standpoint is if you do what the world does, which is you move the standard when you don't like it. And this is especially true in so many social areas in our life. Look at what has happened in the church with regard to divorce. The church has moved the standard. God says he hates it. The church says, well, it's not that bad. God says, I don't want it to ever happen. The church says, well, you almost can't avoid it. The standard is God's standard. And I'm supposed to keep that standard and then not participate. When someone says, well, no, God understands my situation, I'm supposed to go, oh, no, your situation is not different than anyone else's situation from God's view. I don't want to participate in someone else's sin by changing the standard for an individual because they don't like what Scripture says. These, in essence, become biblical counseling principles as well. If we know about someone's sin and we enable them, we fail to confront it, we let them get by with it because they're our friend, how many people do you know that have allowed things to go on in other people's lives because it makes their life difficult to talk about it? it, It's tough. If you're a parent and your, your child is contemplating marrying an unbeliever, that is a tough situation. It's hard. Are you going to change what God's Word plainly states because you don't want your child to be mad? God's Word says, Do not be unequally yoked with the world. If you know Christ, you got no business contemplating marrying someone who doesn't know the Lord. Now, if you don't know that truth and that happens, that is a different matter. But when you know that truth, parents stand for that truth. Look your children in the eye and with the compassion of Christ say, this is not God's best for you. I understand maybe you've fallen in love with this person. But if you are unequally yoked in the most important aspect of your life, which is your relationship with Jesus Christ, where do you think your life is going to go? You see, that's participating in the sins of others. That's allowing people to get into situations that we didn't have enough intestinal fortitude in Christ to say, no, I'm going to stand for what Scripture says. And the same is true for the blight on our nation right now that is gay marriage. We have to stand for the truth. You can't participate in the sins of others. It is unloving for me to see someone caught up in any practice that Scripture declares is sin and just go, well, you know, it's just too hard to fight. I don't want to take us. It just makes my dinner conversation too complicated. We laugh, but is that not true? It is true. We all of a sudden move the standard because somehow our lives become complex because we stand for something that God stands for. If you want to have righteous relationships, you must stand for the truth. And before I speak another word, this does not mean just simply obnoxiousness in disagreement, okay? 
It doesn't mean that you become, you know, mean-spirited and, and angry and bitter and say hurtful things towards anyone about anything. Yet you find a way in the love of Christ to say to someone, that is not God's best for you. And if you want God's best, you have to do things God's way. Don't participate in the sins of others. Don't be an accessory to the crime, so to speak. With knowledge comes responsibility. To whom much is given, much is required. If we have the truth and we walk in the truth and we live the truth, then we need to speak the truth. Just because someone doesn't like to hear the truth doesn't mean we shouldn't speak it. So I was traveling back on when I left Sao Paulo. I, I sat down and for those of you that have traveled internationally long distance, you know that 10, 11 hour plane flights are, are they're not fun. They're, they're the kind of thing that when you've never done it before, you're all excited. Oh boy, I get to fly to another. If you've done it before, you're like, oh no, I have to fly to another continent. So as I'm flying, I get on my plane, and, and I, I fly enough that I have a you know a gold card, and they let you get on early and all those kind of things. And I I'm in on a 777. There are 46 rows, 11 across. Okay, there's over 400 people on this plane. They tell me it's full. I'm on first. At the very end, there's no one in the seat next to me. No one. I have two seats. It's 272 on a 777. And I'm, oh, thank you, Jesus. And here he comes. (laughs) Six, six, 350 pounds if he weighed an ounce. And he sits down. He's a, he works for Singapore Airlines. He does not know Jesus. And he's in my seat with me. My flesh is saying, cast him out. And the Lord's saying, well, you're going to get to know him intimately well. And as I'm sharing Jesus with him and just talking to him, I never have anything else to do. I wasn't going to get to sleep. He's in my seat. You, you, you see, you have to have it all the time with you. I can't, you know, just because I'm going to be uncomfortable for 11 hours and I'm not going to get any sleep and I'm going to be worn out, that's not an excuse for me to be less than kind and godly and loving. A part of me was like, oh, Lord, why are you doing this? And the other part was, man, he must really need something from me. There must be some reason, Lord, that, that you wanted. And at the end of the trip, it was really kind of cool. As I got off the plane, he, he looked over and he says, thank you for being so patient. He says, you know, I haven't been attending church for almost a year. I got disgruntled with my church, and I just left. I need to get back in church. So, you know, that's, yeah, that's a glory to God. Family of God, I don't know why, quite honestly. There's some of the things that happened this last week. I'm just like, Lord, why did you send me there to tell me that, you know? Couldn't you have done that in a dream or a vision or something? But you never know. You you don't know. Are we going to have righteous relationships? And do those things affect everything? Do they affect your leisure time? Do they affect your vacations? You know, some people think that a vacation is a vacation from church. Amen? It's okay. You can say, yeah, all right, I got caught. 
Yeah, we do. It's just like, well, praise God, I don't have to listen to Jeff again. No, I understand. I've had those thoughts myself. I don't want to listen to me sometimes. So if it doesn't reach the heart of who you are, then I would say to you, it's not all that real. And when the tough things come, you won't stand for Jesus. If you won't do it when it's easy, I guarantee you, you won't do it when it's hard. If you won't do it when it costs you nothing, you certainly won't do it when it costs you everything. And God wants us to be those types of individuals for him that we are the same every single day in every situation. And he goes on now in verse 23, one of those verses that are highly contentious, uh, and I want to give attention to this verse because it's very clear in the context. And so he says, and I'm not quite sure why, I've never really come to terms with this being specifically here, beyond I believe it shows Paul's great love for Timothy, because this is, in essence, an encouragement to him. Because Paul cares not just about his mind and not just about his heart, but also about his physical well-being, his likely his emotional well-being. Stop drinking water only and use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. Everybody take pause. Look at this. As I've shared with you before, this is not an excuse for recreational use and consumption of alcohol. It is not. You cannot exegete from this text anything of that type. It doesn't say it. It isn't there. But it also leaves open that is the consumption of a minor amount of alcohol a sin. That also becomes very clear that here in this particular passage, specifically for a medicinal purpose, that it is also not a sin to have a glass of wine. You have to allow one with the other. And so Paul saying, keep yourself pure prior to this, uh, this very mention of, of alcoholic drink uh, causes some people's skin to crawl. It causes others to jump for joy. Uh, you, you have, praise God, look at this. Honey, go get a bottle of wine. It doesn't say those things. Let's celebrate. I, I know, because we know, we've already been told that drunkenness emphatically is a sin. So we know that consumption to drunkenness would absolutely be a sin. You don't even have to worry about that aspect of it. There are several things in view here. Culturally at the time, they did not have refrigerators. They also did not have water purification systems. They did not have any type of water uh, that was reliable as a general rule. You, you could just as easily have a pig sty next to the, your drinking water as have the drinking water next to a nice spring. It, it, it was simply a, a cultural condition that was being addressed. That is one way to look at this. But I, I can tell you this, that you cannot and should not take from this passage anything other than what it states, period, and end of conversation. Paul has given a limited ability uh, for Timothy to take some wine for his stomach and for his frequent illnesses. It is clearly in context to that end. 
one of the things that I always have to deal with, well, it clearly says, yes, it does. But it also clearly says in context something very specific. I also want to draw your attention that no liberty found anywhere in Scripture, no liberty found anywhere in Scripture can be pulled out of the context of the rest of what Scripture declares about liberties. Okay, And in saying that, whether it's the consumption of alcohol or any other liberty, maybe you feel like you want to go smoke a cigar, can I look at you and tell you, man, you're going to hell for sure? The answer is no. If you decide that you want to eat a 96-ounce cheeseburger, can I tell you that, you know, you well, that's just... No, those are individual liberties. If you eat them every day, I can tell you yes, because gluttony is condemned in Scripture. But these things must all be taken in light, I believe, of really one very specific passage, and it's found there in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12. It says, All things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful for me, All things are lawful for me, but here's the clincher. I will not be brought under the mastery of any. So when something you do begins to rule who you are, I can tell you 100% of the time to you it's sin. So, if you can't do without that couple of beers, it is sin. If you are ruled by your cigarettes, it is sin. If you can't quit getting tattoos, it is sin to you, because you are now mastered by the thing which you should have, by the Spirit of God, control over. If you can't stay out of the pantry, it is sin. If your mind turns to sexual things and you cannot control them, it is sin. The issue is mastery. So now, when we look at any liberty... Do I have the liberty to drive 100 miles an hour? Yes, I can. But if every time I get on the freeway, I find myself weaving in and out of traffic, it's sin. But if I happen to do that one time because my son is in the back seat of the car and he needs to get to a hospital, it's not sin. I'm not mastered by it. Do you understand the principle? We must hold all things in light of what Scripture declares about the whole Freedom, self-control, moderation, discipline, personal stake in these things are all taught in Scripture alongside of these individual releases to liberty. So you must not ever take anything in Scripture that is a liberty and drag it out to a lifestyle. Liberty should not lead to a lifestyle, for lifestyle indicates mastery. I've had people use this very verse for both sides of the coin. Well, it's only for medicinal purpose, and I've had those, well, see, you can drink. Neither are true. And the reason they're true is not this verse, but the rest of what Scripture declares. And so Paul's words here, I believe, paint a very clear picture. He was declaring that he was concerned about Timothy's stomach issues. He was concerned about Timothy's frequent sicknesses, which we have very clear extra-biblical evidence, quite common during those days, because in the larger cities, places where lots of people lived, 
As I just experienced in Sao Paulo, there is no such thing as unpolluted water. You don't drink the water in Sao Paulo. You don't do it. If you do, you will be sick. It's that simple. Now imagine Sao Paulo is a huge city, largest city in the world, and they can't keep their water clear. Can you imagine what it was like during biblical times with 10, 15, 20,000 people all drinking out of the same stream? and their farm animals in the fields next to that stream. So it's very clear from the context what Paul was getting at here, and I believe that it's just simply thrown in here to show us that Paul cared about the whole of who Timothy was. He says, you know what, I care about your physical well-being too. Not just your mind, not just your heart, but also your emotions and your body and everything else, because like it or not, the way God's created us, we are a relatively complex creature, Amen. And I can tell you, when you don't feel good, when you're crammed into a seat that's about 12 inches wide, and you can't lean back, you can't lean in the side, because your head will be knocked off by the service carts of the stewardesses as they go by, you know, your your mind begins to think of weird things. And your spirit begins to be afflicted by, it's like, Lord, why did you send me here? You can't pull those parts out. That's why living an ascetic lifestyle doesn't work. You know, you can't just kick all the things out because then your mind will simply still be afflicted by the devil. You are a a very multifaceted individual. Every one of us is, and each of these parts affects the other. When you're emotionally drained, you're, you're spiritually also being attacked. When you're physically not feeling well, very often spiritually attacked. And so Paul addresses this to Timothy, and he says, you know, make sure you take care of all of who you are. Verse 24, the sins of some people, and I love this, are conspicuous and precede them to judgment, while the sins of others follow them there. I love the fact that this is here, because there are some of you that probably think you're getting away with stuff. You're not. There are things that are obvious, and one of the things that you've heard me say relatively frequently is that when God looks at sin, he looks at it very differently than we do. You know, we all have our top ten list. You know, way up there is homosexuality, and then you've got adultery right underneath that, and drunkenness. What about bitterness? What about anger? What about hate? What about mean-spiritedness? about unkindness? You see, some of those things you bury deep inside. They're conspicuous. You can't see them. Other people wear their sinful behavior on their sleeves. You look at them, man, that guy's a mess. But can I say to you, there are a lot of people in the church that are actually a mess. They just don't look like it yet. Make no mistake, God knows what the messes are. And what he's saying here is one day we're all going to answer the Lord. And I'm not talking about salvation by works. And I'm not talking about you having to be perfect before the Lord. I'm talking about none of those things. Because Scripture declares that we are saved by grace and through faith. Nobody's getting to heaven apart from the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses us from all unrighteousness. But there are a lot of people that think they're in a better place than they actually are because they don't do something. Well, I don't drink anymore. I don't take drugs. I'm not in an illicit relationship. I pay my bills on time. But they're bitter, mean gossips. 
They love to destroy other people's character. Can I say to you, those things will follow you. And they will follow you to judgment of the Lord. Because God doesn't like any of it. And he doesn't look at it and go, well, that's only bitterness. I let that slide. From God's perspective, God hates sin of all flavors. And so what it's really saying here is what we don't see, God does. We need to do our best, certainly in choosing leaders who have no open flaws, but we also need to be watching for those internal ones. Because they do have signs, don't they? Those explosions in anger. Those situations that they don't seem to be too terribly afraid of. Those relationships that are perhaps inappropriate. Family of God, I'm sick to death of seeing pastors fallen in sin. It breaks my heart. But can I say to you that that very often was somewhat visible, but they were kind of hidden? Let God deal with the hidden stuff in your life. Confess it, repent of it, and let him have it. And do what he says. Because bitterness will kill you just as quickly as adultery. Anger will overcome you and make you just as unusable to God as will drug use. Some sins follow you. Some are known. Some are easy to spot. Some don't become apparent for a long period of time. We would call those latent sins. They they just kind of hang around. And all of a sudden, boom, there they are. God wants us to be pure even in the things that others don't see. And so also, verse 25 says, good works are conspicuous. Love that. Out in the open, they're there. Everybody can see them. And even when they are not, they can't remain hidden. What it's saying there is exactly the opposite. If you really love the Lord, you don't go around doing everything so that other people will know what you do. You don't wander around, and Jesus put it this way, and when you give or when you do your good deeds, do them in secret and know that your Heavenly Father will reward you openly. But you know what the good news is? When you really live like that, people still notice even if you don't tell them. It's one of the beauties of being the pastor of this church. We don't need a sign out there that says all the things that we do every week for the community or for others. It's totally obvious because other people see it. I get notes and cards and letters constantly. As much as I get the evil, icky stuff that's been sent out by someone who is trying to hurt and maim, I certainly get the glorious reports of all the things the Lord's doing without us needing to be on the front page of the Mountain News. Matter of fact, every time I've been on the front page of the Mountain News, it's generally not been good, okay? So it's usually I'm being equated to the Pope or something of Running Springs, and it's just, you know, some icky thing. You can't hide things that are truly out of your heart. Hospitality. Gentleness. Those, those aren't things that get broadcast. Sure, all the big gifts, you know, somebody comes out, and I mean, if somebody in the church had 
owned a paving company and they paved the parking lot, you yes, it looks awesome. You know, because you're all walking on it. But how about the gifts that our Sunday school teachers have teaching your kids? Don't see them. Nobody's out there with a big long list or a plaque of everything that ever got done. I'll tell you what, there's going to be a lot more kids in heaven. I, I believe there's a lot of Sunday school teachers and those who work in children's ministry are going to have a lot more fruit in heaven than a lot of pastors. I believe that with my heart. Because they care for the right reason. You know, you can become a pastor because it's a job. Nobody changes diapers because it's a job. <laughs> Nobody ministers to the little ones because it's just, man, this is a, what a career path. <laughs> it's a right heart, right motivation. And those things also will follow them right to heaven. Get there, you'll be standing in line waiting to meet Jesus, I think, and there will be that long line of kids. He moves on now to chapter 6, and I don't believe there was a break here in this originally in the original language, and so it kind of keeps, and it moves on now to a, another segment of our human relationships that ought also to bring glory and honor and praise to the Lord. And you could put it this way. What kind of employee are you? Or employer are you? How do you deal with those who work for you or you work for them? I often get into pseudo-arguments with folks because of what this says and obviously because of the course of history here in our country. Uh, we didn't see fit to abolish slavery here until the 1860s. And even then it lingered on after the Emancipation Proclamation was signed. And it is a blight, it is a stain, it is a horrific part of American history. About that, there is no controversy, and the church should have stood up louder at that time than it did. The reason I say that is I don't want anyone to get the wrong impression here. Because the terms that are used here for slavery, you can still equate to slavery as existed here, for a couple of hundred years in our early history. But that really isn't what's being talked about here. Because slavery in the Roman world was a very different thing. Chapter 6 and verse 1, All who are under the yoke of slavery should consider their masters worthy of full respect. And I'm reading from the New International Version. So that God's name and our teaching may not be slandered. Does that say we should allow slavery as we know it? That is not what it says in modern context. It was very different then than it is now. The Roman culture of Paul's day, slavery was very deeply embedded in the society. And yes, there were slaves maltreated then as well. But it's been estimated that perhaps as many as 60 million people on the earth at that time were slaves. And here's why. No McDonald's, no Walmart, no Social Security, no disability, there was no unemployment, there was no social net in the world at that time. And so the only position, the only place that someone could take that perhaps your farm failed... Perhaps you moved into an area and you thought you were going to have some land with which to feed your family. 
very often people voluntarily ended up in slavery because it was the only way to survive. To not do so would have meant death. Certainly, there were people forced into slavery. Certainly, some of the slaves that existed at that time were absolutely treated like animals, and this does not address that. This is not what this passage actually even addresses. It addresses the interpersonal relationships between a slave, in other words, someone who works for someone else, and their master. We would look at it, how are you as an employee? Because every one of us in this room, because I don't think we have the king of the world here with us this morning, I think all of us have existed in this relationship somewhere along its path. Perhaps you're an employer, perhaps you're an employee, perhaps you're a principal, perhaps you're a student, perhaps you're someone who works for someone else, perhaps you employ other people. But here's the beauty of this. When Jesus Christ comes into your life, you also become brothers and sisters. How do you work in that relationship, whether you're an employee or an employer? How do you work underneath the structure of the society that we live in? And I would remind you that slaves then conducted almost all the functions of normal life. They were the housekeepers, they were the farmers, they were the machines, they were the manufacturing, they were the tutors, they were teachers, they were just about everything at that point in time. You were either a slave or you were a master. You kind of didn't have much else. There was no middle class, there was upper class, and there was lower class. And that's all. And so Paul begins to address this part of having righteous relationships Uh, Basically, they would represent to us in our world today what could easily be shown, at least in this country, as those with minimally skilled jobs. Perhaps a minimum wage type of a situation where somebody is going to school, they don't have that degree yet, and they're working for somebody else. Uh, So slavery then was largely economic. It was not racially motivated as a general rule, though it certainly was motivated by conquest and war at times. It was generally not motivated by those things. And so there was a great social and legal gulf that separated slaves and masters. Tremendous differences between those two places socially. And those things exist today. I was down in the Bahamas teaching at the Patmos School. If you've ever been to the Bahamas, a vast majority of Nassau is is in poverty. But boy, you sure don't see that when you get off a cruise ship and you step into Atlantis. And you're sitting there looking at these yachts that are 130 feet long and they have a crew of six to serve two people. There is a huge gulf between the guy that's serving on that boat to that executive who owns some company somewhere in the world, and that guy that's in the engine room greasing fittings. It still exists today. There is a large gulf between people and how they live their lives. And so Paul addresses that, and he addresses it in the context of slave and master. When a master and a slave both became Christians, they became spiritual equals. I no longer have the right to look down on someone else because they simply have a lesser position in this world economically. I must treat them as someone whom 
I love in Christ. And it applies to both sides of the, the equation. Most of you know I've been in business. I've been in corporate business. I have had many employees. I still have many employees. But they're my brothers and sisters in the Lord. I have no right to maltreat them. And they have no right to disrespect me because Jesus bridges that social gap. When I'm down in Brazil and I'm traveling, I was on the, our, our attorney's offices are the top floor of a high-rise office building in downtown Sao Paulo. As nice an office as you'd ever see in any corporate world here in America. And as I was sitting there, it was actually quite embarrassing because about every 10 seconds, they had literally maids that would come in and refresh your water and refresh your coffee and make sure you were fed. And it was just like, Lord. And I wanted to get up and serve them. Why don't you sit down and let me serve you? You see, that is the heart of Christ. The heart of the flesh is, well, they deserve it because they live in the favelas. They can't do anything. God's heart is, we all deserve to live in the favelas. For whatever reason, God allows wealth to exist in one life and it's not in another. Takes care of one person's career path and seemingly someone else struggles. Family of God, I've met some of the most wonderful, even gifted and intelligent people who do not have anything to their name. Christ bridges that gap. You see, if they'd abolished slavery at this time, a vast majority of the world would have fallen apart socially and economically. They didn't have, there was no other way to do it. If you'd have taken out all the slaves, everybody had been sitting around waiting for their, their groceries to come into Stater Brothers, and they'd all starved to death. They didn't have it. didn't exist. And so he addressed a hard issue. And basically what he's saying is, is our work and our employer-employee relationships should in fact speak loudly that I love Jesus. As an employer, I should not abuse, look down on, and in any way, shape, or form take advantage of people who work for me. And as an employee... I shouldn't, because someone else has something that I don't have, look down on them as if they got something that perhaps I don't and never will have. And so, therefore, I have an angry or a bitter outlook towards their life. Some people ask the question from this passage, why doesn't Scripture come out and flatly condemn slavery? And why didn't early Christians do that? And I think there are a number of reasons um, because it was an integral part of the fabric of society and they represented so many of the tasks that needed to be done, uh, to do so at that time would have been detrimental to society itself. I will also tell you that a vast majority of the slaves in the Roman Empire did so as free people. They were slaves, yes, but they were bond slaves, and that's the term that's used here. They voluntarily went into the service of another person because it was the best that they could do in society. I think Christians for a long time uh, were such a small minority of population. Had they moved initially to simply abolish slavery, here's an important point. 
When you get overly involved in social things, you lose the ability and the credibility of the gospel message. Early Christians needed to preach Christ and Him crucified alone for salvation. God will, when He changes men's hearts, also change the fabric of society, as is evidenced by what happened here in our nation's history. When the pilgrims first landed here, when the Puritans first came here, it was very clear that they were going to allow slavery to coexist. It was after men's hearts became totally transformed and changed that they started looking at those relationships going, we can't do this anymore. It's wrong. God, as he reveals himself, also is the revealer of our own hearts. And we all of a sudden look around and go, you know what, I, I, I can't do this. That is why a vast majority of the abolitionist movement here in this country in the 1840s to 1870s were made up of pastors and churches and Christians. They said, you know what, there's enough for us to do. We don't need to do it this way anymore. And because that man of color is also my brother in Christ, I must treat him differently. It was, in fact, that turning to the Lord that really uprooted slavery here in this country. It just took a very long time for those social systems to be changed so that it was even possible. And so the accommodation that was made by Christian slaves and mastery, or Christian slaves and masters, actually gutted slavery itself. Eventually it became impossible because I couldn't look at that person who was in my employ who happened to be a slave, who had lost all their rights, I couldn't leave them there anymore. And so I believe that God intended for those things to go away, but it took a great deal of time to accomplish it, longer than it should have, quite frankly. Verse 2, <coughs> Excuse me. And those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful to them on the ground that they are members of the church. And so he makes it very plainly clear. It becomes extremely obvious. The reason I don't disrespect my boss is because I don't disrespect anybody. Period. I shouldn't be saying that to the person that I don't really even see eye to eye with. I think one of the reasons that civility is flying out of our nation faster than a supersonic fighter jet is because we're fleeing from the things of the Lord. As we flee from the things of the Lord, so will our character and nature no longer match up with His. And so people become disrespectful in their relationships. It's one of the problems with parents and children now. If you do not teach your children godly principles, they won't act like godly kids. And you won't act like a godly parent, and thereby no one's respectful to anyone. Instead... They're to serve them even better. I love what the NIV says there. Even better. In other words, as a Christian, I should be the very best employee. And as a Christian, I should be the very best employer. Period. End of conversation. Can I say to you, it is a shame to the body of Christ the way some people use their Christianity to do less than they should? On both sides of the equation, by the way. I can tell you as someone who grew up in the corporate world, I opened my first business, I was a scant 23 years old. I was a millionaire before I was 30. 
Okay? I know what the corporate world looks like. I can tell you I have been more maltreated by the body of Christ than I ever was by unbelievers. I can tell you that as a pastor. I've had Christians use the fish on their business card to get businesses and then not perform. I have had Christians, oh, yeah, hey, brother, praise the Lord, thank you, Jesus, and then they don't pay their bills. We are to be the very best at everything. It is not an excuse. Well, hey, brother, you're condemning me, man. Do you know how many times I've had, especially young people, look at me, well, I was just praying, you're supposed to be working. Man, that's not very spiritual. Yeah, you're not being very spiritual because you're robbing your employer right now. Now, does that mean that we don't allow prayer at the camp? Heavens, no. But I, I really don't want somebody closing their eyes while they're belaying somebody 60 feet off the ground. Oh, God in heaven, we need to be focused. Pray with your eyes open if you're going to do that. We need to be great employees. Do you know why some bosses don't come to Jesus? Because they've got Christian employees who rob and cheat and steal and don't do what they should do, and they don't do their work. Do you know why some employees do not come to Christ? Because they've got employers who claim to have a Christian business, who don't pay them enough, who don't care about them, who get on their case when they take a vacation to spend time with their family, or they need some medical time off, and their Christian boss says, well, no, I can't believe you do that. It takes both sides, family of God. I need to be Jesus all the time. No matter what station in life I have, no matter where I am, no matter what I'm doing, if I am a Christian, I should be the very best at what I am all the time. Period. And if we'll do that, guess who gets the glory for it? The Lord. So I was sharing with these attorneys in South Paul, and by the way, I am not an attorney. I probably could go past the bar with everything I've learned, but, and I don't say that pridefully. It's just like I've heard more legalese than I want to in my lifetime. But as I'm talking with them, they wanted to know why I was not incensed over what these people are doing to Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa. They're over there. They're, you know, those criminal robbers. We should, you know, let's kill them and take everything they got. You know, typical attorney thing. More money for me? I'm like, no, we don't want to do that to them. We believe they need Jesus. And we believe the reason they're doing this is because they don't know him. And they're, they're shaking their head. But you know what they started asking? Well, what are you guys doing there? We're telling people about Jesus. I'm telling you about Jesus. And whether I'm telling somebody that's ripping me off about Jesus, or someone who's trying to get those things back for the Lord about Jesus, my life is supposed to tell people about Jesus. Period. All the time. No matter what I do. No matter where I am. And so Paul goes on and he closes up this particular passage by talking about false teaching and doctrine. And he says there in uh, verse 3, 
For if anyone teaches false doctrine and does not agree to the sound instruction of the Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, he, he says, you see, all of these things revolve around what God's Word declares. What I've just shared with you just revolves around what God's Word plainly declares. And so we don't get caught up in all the peripheral issues. At the end of the day, if my attorneys can't say I acted like Jesus, then they have an argument. If your employer cannot say you live like you mean to have a right relationship with Jesus, you need to change. If you are an employer and you have employees, you need to live as though you're living everything for Jesus and teaching that doctrine which speaks of the truths of Christ. If you can't say that, then we go back to that sliding scale we started with. We just move it. We change it. We make it say whatever we want it to say. And they're not talking about disagreeing about Arminianism or Calvinism or post-tribulation or pre-tribulation. not talking about that at all. talking about the things that actually are going to get you to heaven. Now, some people will argue, well, you know, if you're not a pre-tribulation... Now, I am a pre-tribulation rapture guy, okay? I'm going to get raptured. I'm going to heaven. There may be somebody here who believes we need to go through the tribulation, and you're convinced in your heart and mind that you're going to go through the tribulation. Or maybe we are now. You know what? When we get to heaven, we'll get our doctrine squared away with that regard. Okay? That isn't going to get you in, isn't going to keep you out. Jesus Christ and Him crucified for sins... That's what's going to keep you in. That's what's going to keep you out, period. That kind of doctrine. So when you begin to haggle over things that are not meaningful, or when you begin to speak falsely, and he's going to give another example here of those who do it for the money. When you start doing those things, then people get the wrong impression about the right things. When I start, well, you don't understand, you know, this particular point of doctrine. Or those things that are patently false, like word faith doctrine, where you tell everybody who comes to your church, you know, if you just uh, give more money, you're going to get a Cadillac and have some diamond rings, and all your worries will be over. That is heresy. And then people don't get rich, and they still do get cancer, and they fall away, and they hate God. You see, if we stick to the right things and we teach the right things and we live the right way, you see, if our orthodoxy ends up in orthopraxy, in other words, those things which we have about our, our knowledge of God and then our application of those things, the orthopraxy, when our doctrine and our duties match up, then people who hear you, see you, live with you, work with you, go to school with you, meet you in the grocery store, at the gas station, when that happens your life will tell them about Jesus. You'll have the opportunity to tell people about Jesus as you're filling up with gas. You'll have the opportunity when you're sitting in endless legal meetings with attorneys to tell people about Jesus. When you're at work in the morning and you're doing that same task that you've done 10 billion times, you're going to do it with the love of Jesus. And when you do that, it's all that God's looking for. He just wants you to live for Him. He wants you to have right relationships on this earth. Verse 4, it says, Conceited, understanding nothing, 
has, has morbid craving for the controversial and for disputes about words, the New Revised says, you see, you see, let's not be disputing about things that don't matter. Because you know what? If you don't quite understand how God pulls off justification, you're probably going to still be okay when you get to heaven's door. If you can't explain the Trinity in detail and quote 50 or 60 supportive scriptures, you're going to be okay when you get to heaven. It isn't going to actually matter if you had a glass of wine or you smoked a cigar. It's going to be okay. But if you want to make dispute over everything so that people ultimately end up hating the God that you supposedly serve because you're so mean-spirited and obnoxious and mean and just vile to be around, that's a problem. And I've listened to Christians sit there and argue amongst themselves and drive everybody away from the kingdom. Well, you know, you've got to believe this and you've got to believe that. There is truth, and I aim to teach that to you, and you should aim to learn that from God's Word without question. I'm not suggesting that I don't have a biblical understanding and a very clear path that the Lord has given me. I am a pre-tribulation rapture guy. I believe that Scripture plainly declares that truth. But nobody's going to be in heaven or out because they didn't understand the rapture of the church. They're going to be in heaven or out because they believed on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and thereby were saved. And so when Christians sit around and argue about these things, and it gets printed in the newspaper and blown up on TV, and they sit around, they can't get along with each other. Why would anyone want to be a part of that group? And so he boils it down to the things that do matter. And quite frankly, what he's really saying here is if at the end of the day, you're not loving, then as Paul said, writing the church at Corinth, you're as a sounding brass. You're a clanging gong, a noisy cymbal, for without love I am nothing. You can have all the right answers so far as your little puny minds can figure it out. And I say that very respectfully for each of you. But let me say this. You know nothing compared to an eternal God. I can't explain to you how he's done everything he's ever done in the course of the universe's history. I can't tell you that. So when Christians sit around and they are so argumentative and hate-filled in their speech that they scream and they yell at each other and they pick on these one this one individual thing that's so important to them when they become so overwhelmed with apologetics or so overwhelmed with eschatology or so overwhelmed with proper doctrinal understanding of a specific part of the plan of salvation, then what happens is people listen to that and go, they don't know it, I'm for sure lost, so I don't want any part of it. The end of the day. Jesus said this, and we'll close this morning. Matthew 7, verse 16. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? And the answer to that, of course, is no. And I love the fact that he used two things that are very painful if you decide to pick on them. Amen? 
If you've ever gotten caught up in a thistle bush or, you know, you run out and go to Butler Peak and try and run through some of the buck brush, not good. Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit, but every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, and therefore by their fruits you will know them. And the fruit of the Spirit is love. It's love. In our right relationships with the rest of the people on this planet, if there's one thing they should always be left with, it is the love of God. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this time this morning, and Lord, so grateful for your continued work in each of us. And and Lord, we know we have long ways to go. Some of us perhaps more than others. But Lord, only your love and only the cross of Christ bridges that great divide. Lord, not one of us will gain entrance into your heaven without the blood of Jesus. Not one will be kept out for any other reason than the blood of Jesus. And so, Lord God, we we thank you this morning that as we ponder how to have right and righteous relationships, Lord, relationships that are good here on this earth and gain us a, a greater glimpse of heaven, Lord, we realize that it's all about you. It's about living Uh, lives that are pleasing and are are defined by the truths of your scriptures. And so, Lord, we pray that you would take each of us and, Lord, you know the adjustments you need to make. Lord, you know the thoughts and the intents of the heart of man. And so we simply turn our lives over to you. Let us be amazing employees and employers. Lord, let us be gracious and kind friends. Lord, let us be in the workplace and in the school who we are in our prayer closet. We thank you for this day, Lord, and for your continued work in each of our lives. Lord, help us to never be satisfied with where we are, but always gaining ground. Lord, pushing ahead, moving forward, that your kingdom would come and your will would be done. Lord, let us bear fruit unto your name. We love you. We thank you that you first loved us. It's in the precious name of Christ Jesus, our Savior, and our soon-coming King, we pray these things. Amen.